You are listening to... That was too much energy. <laughs> you are listening to A Little Too Quiet, the, Fern, the Ferndale Library Podcast. Roddy, come on and say hello. Hello. Mary Graham. Hello. And we are, you know, we sat down today uh, to talk about Guillermo del Toro, and I think this very much became a gothic novel episode. I'm not sure where one ended and the other began, but I think that says something about both both subjects. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, we, we couldn't really pin a genre on Guillermo, but we seemed to all three of us recognize that he has a proclivity towards gothic aesthetics mm, yeah so that's he we... understands he understands as roddy says he gets it he gets it every single time he gets it uh so the director of nightmare alley pan's labyrinth the shape of water you know him uh hellboy blade 2 pacific rim crimson peak crimson peak we go we yeah crimson peak just takes us way off and we wind up at the castle of otranto yes uh which rises me because I've never heard of it. We also talk about Frankenstein and so much more. Here's the episode. I woke up to the sound of a dog crashing into the floor (laughs) because a 60 pound dog at that. And it was very disorienting. So he can't catch sometimes. And so he just kind of like falls. He just runs into things. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes things are the ground. And also he's been doing this thing for the past several days where he's been chasing light. Is and he secretly a cat? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like this is not the first time you've told me stories about your dog. And I'm go- I've gone, Roddy, are you sure that's a canine and not a feline honestly i at this point i don't even know anymore because he gets very upset at the light when he chases it too because you know how like light will reflect off of your phone screen and like onto a wall he will bark at it will try to climb up the wall to get it um which is dog we're not recording yet right yes we definitely are but luckily i already have a segue okay which is (laughs) when did you even press the button I thought you were still setting. He's segue. a master. He's a master of stealth, and the segue is talking about Rowdy's dog. But later today, we will also be talking about various frightening hounds and wolves, the Carpathian Mountains, where we are discussing gothic things. Yes, etc. The things we do for a love like this are ugly, mad, full of sweat and regret. This love burns you and maims you and twists you inside out. It is a monstrous love, and it makes monsters of us all. Quote. Jessica Chastain from Crimson Peak. Yes. <sighs> the most gothic film. Film of all time recently, honestly. Uh, yeah, like modern history, modern being mm-hmm. the 2000s. But <laughs> yeah. We are here today to talk about Guillermo del Toro and all of his films. And how I can connect that to 19th century British literature. Yes, absolutely every (laughs) single one of his films at that yes also because i love him just throwing that out there i love guillermo del toro the only film of his that i have seen confessing this right at the top of the episode is crimson peak Mm -hmm. and that experience alone was enough to make me pledge artistic fealty to him like i would i would give any of his other stuff a chance Mm -hmm. based on that alone because i'm not typically a scary movie person Mm -hmm. uh and so i did have to watch crimson peak with a friend to hold my hand and (laughs) tell me when to look away and when to look back but it is like 
I'm going to use the word perfect too many times, Mm -hmm. but it is just such a flawless... He understands gothic. Yes. Down to his soul. And you see this, might I say, in just about every single one of his movies. So I haven't seen all of his movies, which I know may come as a shock, but I've seen most of them. Because I sat down and made a list. I've seen Blade 2. I've seen both Hellboys, which I would like to talk about. Pan's Labyrinth, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, The Shape of Water, and as of last night, Nightmare Alley. And he gets it. He gets it. And I know somebody might be thinking like Pacific Rim, and I'm just going to defend that movie until I die. It's not necessarily that it's a gothic film. But, but Guillermo del Toro gets it. He gets it. He does not miss. And earlier today, Jeff, you and I were were talking about his work as a whole. And at first you said, oh, well, Crimson Peak kind of kind of stands out or stands alone and then you thought about it for about five seconds and you were like that's a lie that's not true mm-hmm. and i said literally all of his films stand out are standalone right and i thought nightmare alley was not going to do that and then the final act of the movie happened it's actually really funny i emailed jeff i was like jeff i don't i don't think this one is going to do it for me i think i think it's finally over and then i don't know how many minutes later I emailed him after the end of the movie and I was like, never mind, he got me again. <laughs> I'm here. And there's one thing that I would like to point out about him that I really feel like makes it so that he gets it. And that is the way he designs his stories quite literally. His monster design mm-hmm. in the monster movies that he does is just, I've not seen anything like it. It's beautiful if you watch the hellboy movies and i've been thinking about them specifically because hellboy is like my favorite (laughs) and so when he did the movies when i was younger i was so excited and the way the monsters are designed i'm not saying that he had everything to do with that but i've seen that enough in his other movies to go okay well he's definitely either got the right team doing this or have a has a heavy hand in it they're just so creative and they're like horrifying but beautiful at the same time which is the point of the monstrous yes like right having done some study of monstrosity as a concept in my undergrad years mm-hmm. it's first of all it's something that is social mm-hmm. monstrosity is conferred socially and there often is this element of like actually humanness to mm-hmm. it which is what makes it terrifying and also there's something beautiful about it in the in the way of the sublime. Yes. Which is that it's terrifying mm-hmm. and you can't look away. Yeah, there's this scene in Hellboy 2 that I'm thinking about where Hellboy played by Ron Perlman is like battling this sort of like tree monster thing. And then once he finishes it, it turns into an actual like flora. And it's like literally gorgeous. Like it's blooming. And even though it's like wreaks so much havoc and killed people i haven't seen that movie in a minute like when it dies you kind of feel sad right that it's no longer there yeah um because you've seen the potential of the beauty that it can become now that it's dead and it's very solemn because it happens in the middle of a city so you know that it's going to get removed it's not like it's going to stay there yeah and it's kind of a remark on like nature dying (laughs) and right I think that that sense of the beautiful and the horrifying is so deeply mm-hmm. just entwined with him because certainly Crimson Peak is is like that. And at the end of like one of my favorite parts about the Gothic is like house. Yes. Like any Gothic that involves house, mm-hmm. creepy, <laughs> sentient, falling apart, 
any or all of the above. And so, you know, you watch Crimson Peak and it falls down by the end. It's very Fall of the House of Usher, um, which that's on purpose. Um, (laughs) But it's a a beautifully, beautifully done movie. And even Mm -hmm. like with all of the like the red soil the red mm-hmm. clay that looks all makes all the mud around the house look like it's blood mm-hmm. like there's still something when that starts to happen it's not like oh ew, it looks like blood it's like ah, yes it looks like blood here it comes it's happening like it's it's i really did spend most of the movie every time we got onto another gothic trope that mm-hmm. was so beautifully executed like shaking my little fists like the toddlers I used to babysit when they got excited. <laughs> the friend I was watching it with, I was like, ah, it's the, th- he did the thing. And yes. she was like, yes, he did. Yes. Right. You know, when Crimson Peak came out, I remember reading a lot of reviews that said, I feel misled. This- Roddy just gave a look. <laughs> this isn't horror, quote marks, or italics. This isn't, this isn't horror. This was packaged in promised to be horror this was something else this this movie this movie isn't scary enough and that was the phrase so i'd love mary graham to take the floor and tell us about this film a little bit of plot synopsis for people who haven't seen it and what she loves about it yes so uh crimson peak takes place during the industrial revolution uh and the main character is edith who is played i think by mia vashkova uh and she is fantastic in this film and she is the daughter of a wealthy american industrialist she has uh writing aspirations she wants to be a novelist uh somebody at one point snootily says you know well maybe you'll be like jane austen who died a spinster and she says i'd rather be like mary shelley who died a widow so we're bringing shelley into this Mm -hmm. um and then you have Tom Hiddleston as Thomas Sharp, who is a British aristocrat. So ding, ding on the Gothic bell there, <laughs> the aristocracy. Uh, and he uh, has come to town. He courts Edith. Her father does not want her to take this match and and even go so far as to send Sharp away. But uh, he comes back in a rush to proclaim his love. Uh, and then Edith's father is violently murdered. <laughs> and so... She marries him. Oh, dear. And they go to Crimson Peak, which is his ding ding on the Gothic bell, decaying ancestral home where his sister Lucille lives. Uh, and Lucille clearly does not like Edith and hasn't from the beginning. She has also come to Tom- with Thomas to America. Clearly doesn't like Edith. And it's, it's basically a case of, of Edith going around being like, what is going on in this house? Why does my sister-in-law hate me? Why won't my husband tell me anything? Uh, and it is eventually revealed that, and, and Thomas is trying to perfect uh, some kind of industrial contraption. Getting some Bronte vibes. Bronte vibes. Uh, Bronte vibes. And it's it's failing over and over again. Uh, one of the reasons Edith's father didn't want her marrying him was like, oh, he's just out for your money, which like, yeah, uh, he is because he's lost all this money on this industrial project and eventually through classic ding ding on the gothic bell snooping through the house uh by herself edith discovers uh that her husband and sister-in-law have a criminal history that he has been married to a lot of women before who have all died and who have left wax recordings that you can play on a gramophone saying if you are listening to this dear god get out and uh and eventually do i like do I spoil the whole thing? Spoiler alert, you can fast forward 30 seconds of the podcast if you don't want to hear what's happening next. Yes. In a huge 
tip of the hat to the fall of the House of Usher, Edith learns that, like, Thomas and Lucille have a an incestuous relationship. <laughs> there was a baby that has died, uh, and that, that Lucille is just extremely possessive of her brother. And, you know, all of these women were married for their money and then basically <laughs> driven to madness. There is, of course, a noble young lawyer who was introduced earlier in the film who wanted to marry Edith, who Edith did not marry. He has pieced all of this together on the other side of Atlant- the Atlantic. He comes over kind of just in time. And the end of the film is Thomas and Lucille are no longer alive. Edith is. Not at what cost, because mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's satisfying. But you get the sort of crumbling, the disintegration of Thomas's ghost and this lone these two you know survivors of this horrible this horrible sequence of events at at disintegration of thomas's ghost i'm gonna add in sound effects of just creepy wind yes Mm -hmm. and then every time mary graham just said ding ding i'm gonna add a decaying church bell sound effect so yeah it would be appropriate and then and the the whole film ends with lucille's ghost because it's also very like clearly stated that crimson peak is haunted edith can see ghosts she has always been able to and so we, we end with lucille's ghost playing the piano and it's just it's everything i love for me my primary requirement for any good gothic novel the moral degeneracy of the aristocracy must be revealed mm-hmm. like i love that the gothic is a genre that's like if you are rich stop that we have no reason to trust you <laughs> your riches have likely made you into a horrible person who doesn't care about other people uh and i read that and i'm like Someone wrote this for me. Right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> right. You know, Alan, Roddy's going to take the floor. I'm just going to add in here real quick. The reason we're talking about Guillermo del Toro is that he defies genre mm-hmm. whilst also indulging genre. He's mm-hmm. so genre aware. And I don't know na- how he does that because the when I started talking about Guillermo to Mary Graham, I kept finding myself repeating the phrase complexities. There's the <laughs> complexities. It's, it's complex, but it's also simplistic to you but it is complex but i gonna... mean like yes crimson peak is a, a gorgeous to look at and, and mm-hmm. complex film but its beauty is in its almost narrative simplicity right. which is that it's not for me the joy of a genre is being able to see something coming just around the corner yes so like when they get to the house and i'm like oh it's gonna fall down at some point and then mm-hmm. it does mm-hmm. that is satisfying <laughs> like the, this podcast happened it was Primarily Roddy's idea. She is taking the floor. Okay. So Hellboy. I've been sitting here like trying not to spontaneously combust. You're vibrating in your because seat. Right. <laughs> Jeff knew the moment he started talking about the reviewers that I was going to lose my mind. So I'm so yes. glad that he seated to Mary Graham first so that I can't be on this pulpit forever. Mm-hmm. However, I would like to say that I too had that experience of being told, because I went to go see this when I was in college with a couple of friends. And I was told, oh, this is going to be scary. This is a horror movie. This is going to be terrifying. And I was just like, sure, I'm just here for Guillermo del Toro because I knew that I loved him at that point. I'd been focused on my senior thesis. I really didn't know much about the movie outside the fact that Tom Hiddleston was in it and so was Charlie Hunnam. So that was about it. And Jessica Chastain, who I was there for, for the acting because I love her as well. It is her movie and we are all just living in it. Absolutely. So Like, they're all good, but 
next level stuff from Jessica. Exactly. And I'm just, I'm sitting there like you gripping tightly to my friend's hand because I'm just like, I'm not a horror movie person, but I will, I will do it for Guillermo del Toro. And then the movie's happening and I'm like, wait, no, they were wrong. And I was delighted about the fact that they were wrong because- They should have known from the moment that the movie opened with a gothic novel being opened what they were getting into. He couldn't have made it any clearer from the like literal very opening of the movie. And as a person who loves gothic novels and just the genre in general, I was so happy when I watched that movie because I was like, yes. Yes. This is where I put on my Professor Kirk voice and go, what do they teach in schools these days? You know, thinking about all of these reviewers who one dear God would hope have basic media literacy and criticism skills. And yet they can't get that it's gothic from the opening of the gothic novel. I don't know how much more obvious he could have made the fact that this was a gothic novel in film. The target audience for this film is costume design nerds Mm -hmm. and English majors. Yes. Right. This is, I don't know where or how Hellboy or Pacific Rim is going to fit into this, but when I think of Friday can step up to the plate for those three films later, but when I think of almost all of his films, except for Mimic, he seems to be very interested in atmosphere. Yes. Mm -hmm. A vibe, Mm -hmm. a, a look, color schemes. There's just this... Fog, thick, moodiness. Coherent. Yes. Right. And that moodiness exists in those three movies. I'm not going to get on the Pacific Rim, like, thing too much because I also just like that because that's kaiju and mech, which is basically like giant robots. So that's a whole other interest of mine. I'm going to set that aside, but I am going to focus on Hellboy because Hellboy, especially the first movie... No, actually both. They have that atmosphere and they have the elements of crumbling and decaying. Um, In the first Hellboy, it's a little weird. It's mostly focused on the atmosphere and like the story, but it's got all the weird stuff that gothic novels have. Like it's very, if I were to compare it to a gothic novel, I would compare it to, in terms of feeling, the picture of Dorian Gray. Oh, okay. In terms of like, do you see what I'm, where I'm going with that? I can't articulate it as well as I want to, but there's the decaying, there's the changing, there's kind of like the deal with the devil going on, quite literally in the case of Hellboy. In terms of Hellboy 2, that's where you get into your, I don't know what it is with this in gothic novels, but your weird sister-brother relationship, the decay of like a kind of, I can't remember if they're sort of like an elven race kingdom, but like literally their entire lifestyle because these are nature-based creatures are decaying because of the modern world. There's that aspect of it There's as like well. There's like doomed love or forbidden doomed love. love or yes. sickly love, I because think. Because Doug, Doug Jones, is that his name? Yes. Uh, that is a frequent collaborator of Guillermo del Toro. He's in, I think he's his he, most frequent. He is the fish man. Yes. In Shape, Shape of Water. Water. Okay, sorry. But Gonna stay on top. Blair is the actress, I believe. Yeah. And I remember that I haven't seen those movies in a while, but I remember that her, she, her, obviously she's got powers of some kind, mm-hmm. but her health is a concern. Right. Her powers, I haven't watched this movie in a while either. There's a sort of Not love. Not that she's sickly, but yeah, there's you a... could 
imagine her in a gothic novel just yes. having like a cloak over her shoulder and coughing or something. Yeah. Yes. Know. And then so Abe is what the they board. call the fish man, I believe, because he was a think the stories he was discovered the night that abraham lincoln died but he's much older than that anyway the two of them have this sort of kinship however by nature of the type of being she is she's like intrinsically tied to her brother to like the point where like if one of them dies the other will likely die spoiler alert but it's been over a decade so i don't care as much and yeah that that exists so it was just like gothic novel but like also sci-fi fantasy and then we're gonna like smash them together in terms of hellboy 2 i can't make the same connections with pacific rim until i rewatch it and then i go oh there are the dots but it definitely exists in hellboy well and what he seems to be so adept at doing is i mean pacific rim is a is a certain genre Mm -hmm. and he just goes hell for leather yes within the genre and he does it extremely well Mm -hmm. and I think that there's just something to be said. Like, I'm thinking about when Knives Out came out mm-hmm. and everybody lost their mind. That film, like, it was not high budget. It wasn't planned to be a blockbuster, mm-hmm. but it's a mystery done incredibly well. Yeah, very Christ- Christie-esque. lost their minds. Yes. Like, understandably. And also the way that it kind of falls out <laughs> reminds me of Murders in the Room Morgue, where it's kind of just like... So I'm not going to spoil the ending of Knives Out. I feel like that's a little recent, but like there is some sort of like almost humorous, but kind of like wild machinations that happen that result in the murder in that movie. Definitely. And so if you've ever read Murders in the Room Org by our beloved Edgar Allan Poe, you don't know what's going to happen. at the, Like I remember reading that in high school and I was like, where did the monkey come from? <laughs> Technically not a monkey, but like... <laughs> primate anyway gonna get way off topic but there's that aspect of it too and gothic novels get weird they're so weird and permit me to say so that's so sexy of them like in a number of reasons you know actually considering the history of i feel like maybe we should do a brief like the gothic what is it question mark Mm -hmm. um because it's a a mostly literary tradition uh that has its roots kind of really gets kicking in the 18th century Mm -hmm. and then extends basically until today people still write gothic fiction absolutely um and it's characterized depending on i mean it's a bunch of different countries so there's american gothic there's european gothic there's italian horror gothic like specifically in the (laughs) early days is a big deal Mm -hmm. um and there's just a lot of there's this kind of bag of tricks that you can reach into um big big theme is the present is haunted by the past Mm -hmm. and kind of whether you're in a creepy house or not whether you have incestuous siblings or not uh whether there's religious horror or not Mm -hmm. like the present is somehow haunted by the past um and usually rich people are bad yes yes usually rich people are bad and let's distinguish this is i guess technically around the same era that dickens is writing Uh, once we get into later to later gothic stuff for sure because i always thought that Dickens was writing stories in the cities and the gothics take place more so in the country on the estates Mm -hmm. or elsewhere a sense of seclusion somewhat it's a good you certainly have that sense of isolation right it's interesting to see so 
Dracula. Dracula. Starts. And it did those church bells again. Ding, ding. <laughs> uh, Dracula, which is the 1890s, so quite late. So mm. we've, we've had the Gothic for over 100 years by this point. Um, Dracula begins, you know, out in the wilds of Transylvania. And there's so much to be said about the xenophobia <laughs> towards Eastern Europeans yeah. in that book and at that time. However, the bulk of it takes place in London. Mm-hmm. And so it, it does have this urban feel as well um which i think is very interesting dracula's been on the mind recently because i don't know if you guys are familiar with dracula daily uh yeah ratty yeah you are Uh, (laughs) which is so last year uh a most excellent guy and i'm sorry excellent guy i did not think to write your name down before we started this podcast said to himself what if I went through Dracula and I made a timeline because Dracula is an epistolary novel. I made a mm-hmm. timeline of all the dates in the book and I started a substack where on every date I sent out the passage from the book, which actually means you get parts of the book out of order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he did it last year and apparently some people were like, yeah, this was cool. This was fun. And so this year he was like, oh, should we do it again? And now 25,000 people and counting are like, yeah, this is cool. This is fun. Yeah. So, like, I had a bunch of my friends. I read Dracula in high school, um, but I had a bunch of my friends have subscribed to Dracula Daily, and like, I got there's an entry in the in the book for we're recording this on May 11th uh, for May 11th. So I got my little email today from my dear friend Jonathan Harker. Yeah. <laughs> or no, is- today's a, a letter from uh, Lucy, uh, and so it's a great time. But I'm fascinated by how so many people are are losing their minds over it right now both as a piece of serialized fiction right um which speaking of dickens you know he ran a lot of serial fiction magazines but also just as a piece of sure old Uh, book holds up by the way i just want to throw this out there so that it can be like publicly recorded vampires are about to have a big comeback yeah that's all i have to say agreed so you have no idea and Uh, my my fascination with Dracula as a novel partially stems from so like I was in middle school during the Twilight craze and then Dracula was required reading in high school and I was very frightened of vampires as a child Mm -hmm. so when Twilight came around I was like why do they sparkle why are they why are they attractive stop it I stop lying to me and then I read Dracula which is a a frightening book. Graham, I need you to meet my mother when she comes out here because I'm sorry, Jeff. Most kids, I'm going to put my mom on the spot once more. Most kids, what are their introduction to vampires? As you said, like for our generation, it was like likely Twilight. Maybe they saw, I don't know, one of those weird teenager shows. However, interview with the vampire Uh was mine, Uh. which was quickly followed by Queen of the Damned, the movie. Oh, Anne Rice. Bless her soul. Uh, A complicated (laughs) legacy. A complicated legacy. That movie, Queen of the Damned, the film, technically, is it a good movie? I don't know. I'm not going to be the judge of that because I love that movie. I, the atmosphere, the music, one of the best movie soundtracks of all time. I am saying so many opinions right now. But that was like my real, real vampire introduction. And then my mom was like, oh, also, here's Dracula. But it was actually Queen of the Damned first. It, listen, that was a modern 
gothic movie from start to finish with an amazing rock soundtrack. So once again, just throwing opinions out there. But like, uh, it really got the heart of like the gothic vampire story, which we haven't gotten that in a very long time. No, and I'm fascinated by the fact that, because that's a recent-ish movie. 2001? You know, it's this millennium. 2001, yeah. um, if, if not And earlier. then we also have Crimson Peak, which I think is 2015. Thereabouts. Uh, which are so good at what they do. And yet, you think about a lot of the classic works mm. of gothic literature frankenstein dracula strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde Mm -hmm. permit me to say so adaptations are trash no absolutely they're horrible like i remember reading (laughs) dracula and i've never seen any of the film adaptations of dracula but i've read synopses and i remember reading the the book and being like but this is good actually why would you have to change it like why would you have (laughs) to try to like make dracula sexy or make mina fall in love with him or something like right let her be with her nice solicitor husband yeah and let them all when i read it and i realized it's like a buddy adventure story about Mm -hmm. vampire hunting i was like oh this rules actually absolutely and i did in college see uh the hillberry theater at wayne state did an excellent stage adaptation of dracula that follows very closely to the book uh and the first act ends with them uh with the the demise of lucy mm-hmm. in her undead form and so there's like stage fog and they've got the bells literally ringing and they're reading the burial office from the book of common prayer and it's like the good stuff and i'm like so why has no one put that on a screen yet because when you put keanu reeves in a movie okay all right so <laughs> i'll take over on the mic because i'm the oldest one here <laughs> 1992, Francis Ford Coppola adapted Dracula, and it was a very big deal. And I was actually technically too young for it, but it was like such a cultural ripple through Gen X. It mm-hmm. was amazing. Gary Oldman is a freaky Dracula who can become a sexy Dracula. And yes, they do put in a subplot of a love story between Dracula and Mina. Let Winona writer smooch Keanu Reeves and call it a day. And Keanu, bless his heart, is good, I will say, in half of the movie. Um, There's an entire other 50% of all of his line deliveries that um, are are cringe-inducing, and I love him no matter what. That can't stop me from doing that. Um, Listeners, you can't see Roddy, but like she just had her hands over her eyes. Here's the thing, is that to its credit, except for two admittedly humongous diversions they're pretty dedicated to the book and even include letter reading in voiceover for i'm skeptical the entire main cast everyone gets a chance at the mic it's it's not the entire film but they at least do have the letter and they at least follow it to the end they just have two completely ridiculous diversions do they include the, the cowboy at least of course they do okay good of course some adaptations don't and i'm like you're leaving good money on the table it's one of the most tragic scenes. Yes. Okay. Uh, when he, when he, spoiler alert. Anyway, um, I was just going to comment, like, quick shout out to Matt Kirkland is the one who's doing Dracula Daily. Thank you, Matt Kirkland. And I think that it was a genius idea because culturally we, a lot of us are in kind of a, a wordle state of existence where we are enjoying daily, bite-sizable, mm-hmm. fun things to look forward to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what 
this Dracula thing has become, even if it isn't technically daily. Yes, it is not technically daily because there are stretches of the novel where nobody is writing anything down. Right. This is the difficulty with an epistolary novel. I'm finding it very interesting, having read the novel straight through, to get the bits that happen out of order. So, like, in, in the book, you get the whole chunk of Jonathan's diary where he's like surely this is just a regular event in the life of a solicitor's clerk and then you see his progression to like oh i'm in danger danger. Uh, and and i love that stoker wrote himself into a corner so much that we don't even know how jonathan escapes he's just like oh i blacked out well i think people were picking up that the mia character in crimson peak is something that oh okay this will be a harker-esque character who we're gonna follow into a shady situation yeah and she will get in too deep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which d- definitely for sure. But with Dracula Daily, like his journal is getting interrupted by Mina and Lucy writing letters. So it's right. actually extremely funny, you know, for him to be like, you go from an entry where he's like, huh, I'm a prisoner in this castle. And then the next day you get a letter to Lucy from Mina being like, haven't heard from Jonathan. Hope he's doing all right. Like, <laughs> we are talking about vampires. Yes. And we are talking about gothic novels and Guillermo del Toro. And Blade 2. We need to talk about Blade 2. Blade 2. Because, because Blade 2 is also just it fits the bill um first of all his vampire design absolutely love it iconic um for most part you have like vampires the fangs that extend from the top he has jaw opening um for a based on mary graham's reaction i'm not even going to show her a picture thank you um because my imagination is doing just fine however it also involves a family struggle and a vampire brother and sister with a complicated relationship not necessarily incestuous but that still it hits every single note while staying true to vampire lore so i just i'm not going to necessarily go on a blade two tangent but it is once again guillermo del toro understanding the assignment in its fullest form and i love him for it and yes the jaw things are very unsettling to look at but i watched it when i was a child so now i'm like desensitized to it thanks parents for letting me watch things i shouldn't have been watching and see you turned out just fine so like for all these parents these days who were like oh god what if my kid reads a book about gay people i promise you they will live yes and then let them watch blade too yep Um, um Should we discuss Frankenstein? Um, I would like to. I would also like to give a shout out to the first, what is regarded as the first gothic novel because it hits all of the fun bells. It's called The Castle I was of Entranto. I was going to ask if we could guess which one it was, and oh, I was going to guess Entranto. So it anyway, is. Continue. It's, Sorry. Say it again. The Castle of Entranto. I've never heard of There's this. There's no in. I just can't pronounce words. It's like O T R A. N-T-O, so that's where the O is. I mean, the N is. This does not matter. Please cut this out later. But this, no, no, it all matters. This, uh, is this Radcliffe? Um, it is Horace Walpole, Walpole, and it was written in 1764. It is older than the United States. Amazing, America. amazing. No um, one can see, but when, <laughs> so, when, listen, I had to grasp things here. Mary Graham said, "Let's talk about Frankenstein," <laughs> and then Roddy said, "Let's instead talk about the first Gothic novel," well, and I said. 
<laughs> it isn't Frankenstein. It's not. It's not. No, and see, this is the bit about the Gothic really taking root yes. in the mid 18th century. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> and and the early stuff. So like, most of my knowledge of of early Gothic literature actually comes from my deep deep affection for Northanger Abbey, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of Jane Austen's best novels. And anyone 100%. who says otherwise. They don't, they don't care about you. We will find um, you. Sorry. So Northanger <laughs> Abbey is about 17-year-old Catherine Moreland, who, if she were alive today, bless her heart, would be like a vampire-loving, nerdy fangirl. Mm-hmm. And she loves gothic novels. And this is a time when novel reading is highly gendered activity. And it is something that, that men are very suspicious of because they're like, dear God, these women, we let them learn how to read. And now they're reading these books that are whipping them into a frenzy of emotions. And they're fainting all over our couches. And <laughs> but Catherine Moreland's parents are sensible and let her read whatever she wants. And so she just reads all these gothic novels and starts to like imagine all these things in her life as a gothic mm-hmm. plot so she gets invited to northanger abbey the ancestral home ding ding of the gentleman she's interested in who also has a sister except they're all relentlessly normal people except for their father who mm-hmm. <laughs> john mulaney voice who's that guy i think he did kill his wife and and <laughs> Catherine is like oh my god like did your father murder your mother and eventually <laughs> She poses this question to her love interest, and he's like, no, God, oh, my God, what the hell? No, that's not what happened. Although, even when Catherine is wrong, she is right. Because later, he's like, okay, so literal murder did not occur. However, she was a very unhappy woman. And that was mostly our father's fault. So, Mm. actually, maybe, sort of. But it includes all of these references. And it's written in the early 1800s. So, Catherine is reading books that are not that old. No, they just came They out. just came out. Yeah. And and Entranto is one of them. And that book, the reason why I brought it up before Frankenstein just very slightly is because I actually have this copy. It's called Three Gothic Novels. Mm-hmm. And it includes both Entranto and Frankenstein <sighs> in it. Um, watch the trajectory. Basically, it starts with that with Entranto and then ends with Frankenstein. I think the one in the middle is called like Vathic or something like that. Interesting. Um, didn't really. Anyway, the reason why I brought it up is because the the funny thing about that book is that it almost is just like every single gothic trope. We need to put it in here. There's like this weird past prophecy. There's all these crazy relationships going on. There's death. There's murder. There's a father accidentally murdering his daughter, trying to leave his wife to marry the daughter of someone else so that he can hold his stake in the castle because the aristocracy is a mess. It's all over the place, but it holds just about every trope that we need for the genre in general. And this is what I appreciate about gothic creators writers especially is that they'll go rummaging around in what people have done before mm-hmm. and gone what worked what didn't work what mm-hmm. can we use again your comment about gothic i mean many things are older than the political entity now known as the united states of america but your comments about like oh this book is older than the u.s is i'm like the united states as a political project was a gothic horror novel the whole time uh, <laughs> you know what but i don't enjoy it as much well that's fair it's not <laughs> as much fun when like the moral degeneracy of the aristocracy is ruining your house. Exactly. <laughs> the word, I think, I think the word like decay or just the aesthetic yeah. of decay is coming mm-hmm. around because we're talking about 
castles that have existed for a long time, aristocracies mm-hmm. that have existed for a long time, hellboys that have existed for a long time. <laughs> There's all these long reaching stories yeah. that again goes back into a long rooted mm-hmm. past. Yes. And I think there's all even that going on in Pan's Labyrinth where these fantastical creatures have been there since yes. before time. And now you have this modern fascist movement on mm-hmm. the surface level. But there's just roots and roots and roots and past and past and past and old, old past stories and dramas and grief and decay and and, and it's baggage. Very... People got baggage. It's very yes. sins of the fathers. Yeah. I mean, yes. it's very, it doesn't father. matter that this thing happened 300 years ago. You're going to pay for it now. Right. It's going to affect you now. The cool thing about Penn's Labyrinth, by the way, is that the decay that happens does not happen to the natural world or the magical world. It ends up happening to the modern fascist world in the end. So he does. We love to see He that. takes the decay and it's there. Yeah. And it's present. Yeah. But he turns it onto the modern world. Um, or at least that particular iteration right. of modernity instead of, you know, the fantastical world. So well, Jeff and I were also talking earlier about um, monstrosity and like who the actual monsters in these films are. And it, like the two astronauts and planet Earth meme about like, wait, it was fascism the whole time. Always has been. <laughs> um, and, you know, you can think about that with like with Crimson Peak, like, oh, the monster was. I don't know, <laughs> like the industrial revolution right. or the, the creepy incestual, yeah. you know, although that, you know, stems from the, the reason those two are criminals is because they murdered their abusive mother. And so yes. like their sense of the, of the parents, it's mm-hmm. all there. Right. Um, or in the shape of water, Michael Shannon is the monster. Absolutely. Or in Frankenstein. Dr. Frankenstein. No, he never even finished his school. Like, Mr. Frankenstein. Victor Frankenstein. <laughs> Mr. Victor Frankenstein, who collapses with nervous fever anytime he mildly inconveniences himself, mm-hmm. is the monster. <laughs> and in Hellboy, he's not the monster. That's right. Everyone else is. Mm-hmm. I'm taking that stand. Yes. But yeah, no, that particular line, I was just like, oh, yeah, it's just Frankenstein over and over and over and over again, yeah. um, in which... The concept of like imposing the monster on something outside of yourself when it's actually just you the whole yeah. time, right? And then, <laughs> but then also sympathizing with the the character who is wrongly perceived as the as monster, monster, yes, which is very much going on in Hellboy and Shape of Water, yes, and Frankenstein, and Frankenstein, and Frankenstein, and and the Devil's Backbone, which is a great horror film mm-hmm. about a ghostly child sort of haunting uh, an orphanage. I recommend it. Maybe too scary for Mary Graham, but I recommend it. Okay. She does scare easily. She does. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, with Frankenstein in particular, I mean, like, yes, it's very uh, Jurassic Park. You scientists spent so much time thinking about if you if you should or if you could, you didn't think about whether or not you should. However, like, Victor Frankenstein's, like, reaction of disgust is not about the fact that he's basically, like, reanimated something. It's that, like... He realizes, oh, here's like a seven foot tall guy who's I made out of corpse parts. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the like the monster himself, Adam is what he names himself, is like if treated with love, would just be a normal dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it is Victor Frankenstein's reaction to his own work that like monstrousness is a product of something mm-hmm. you know it, it takes victor saying that's a monster in order for adam to act in monstrous fashions oh wow sins of the father and 
I just want to like give a shout out once again to Jane Eyre. I was wondering when we were going to get to my greatest of all time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. We both had our Jane Eyre times. We're still like going through our Jane Eyre times. I am never going time. to stop going through my Jane Eyre times. I, I love her. And it took me so long to realize that Jane Eyre was a gothic novel. Because I was just like, oh, yeah, no, this is this classic piece of literature that I'm just, like, because identifying. Because your brain selects out all the supernatural parts mm-hmm. because most of them are actually explainable. Like, yes. so he's locked someone in the attic. Yes. Like, that's that's explaining the creepy laughing and the fires being set exactly. out of nowhere. But there is that scene toward the end where she, like, hears his voice from clear mm-hmm. across the country. And you're like, oh, wait. Okay. So there is some, like, Yes. And stuff. the way he gets his sight back. Oh, I always forget about that part. Yeah. I have, There's a lot to be said we about. We don't need to talk about Mr. Rochester, no. who is the monster of Jane Eyre. I was just about to say. It's what happens when you marry your monster. Um, yeah. So I don't know what else there is to say about that, except maybe don't. Yeah. Um, but it's just as a as a novel and very good film version also with Mia Vashkova. Yes. Who knows what she is doing. Yes, she does. Um, it's there's something to me that is just so perfect about it. And I, and I think that its perfection lies in being able to come back to it over and over again. Mm-hmm. And even if I'm not necessarily discovering new stuff, there's still so much there to explore that I get pleasure from exploring and I'm like, ah, oh, Charlotte, you old broad, you did it. I think the appeal to Jane Eyre that I don't always get in gothic novels is Jane's ability to take command oh of God. herself yeah. and the environment that she's in. I feel like in a lot of other gothic novels, their characters usually kind of like floundering, like, what's happening? Things mostly happen to yeah. them. Yes, exactly. Whereas, like, things do happen to Jane, but she happens right back. Exactly. And immediately she doesn't like wait (laughs) oh no which is what is so like was so endearing about her to me i read this book when i was like 16 Mm -hmm. um and and taking a british literature class in high school and she i think was sort of the first well we'd had lady Macbeth earlier that year but the first kind of female character that we got in our literature that year Mm -hmm. who was like oh i'll punch you back exactly oh i'll set i'll i'll put this fire out (laughs) oh i'll you know my uh my moral fiber is too strong to you know degrade myself for settling for anything for less than what i wanted and you lied to me so goodbye forever i will leave you at the altar yeah i don't care this is the only time i'll ever be able to deliver this and the opportunity is just too ripe i'm actually about to read a meme on a podcast okay (laughs) is it from spark notes it is you might know this one i would not be surprised if you came along to it already i'm still going to deliver it for the fans at home jane austen really said I respect the I can fix him movement, but that's just not me. He'll fix himself if he knows what's good for him. And that's why her works are still calling the shots today. Next comment. Meanwhile, Emily Bronte just said, we can make each other worse. Yes. Next comment. Mary Shelley said, I can make him. (laughs) Yes. Whoever runs the Sparknotes various accounts. It's amazing. I hope that you're part of a union that means you get insanely good health insurance There's and a ton of money. Something 
So the other word is tragic. Mm-hmm. There's something tragic that is in Guillermo film movies oh, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that we're all that we've been touching on. Yeah. Because um, even something like Jane Eyre, which ostensibly happy ending, right. wife and addict conveniently dies. Mm-hmm. She gets reunited with her love interest, but really, we really believe mm. that that's like an unmitigated happy ending. Right. I mean, Crimson Peak. She goes for her second option. Right. It's like, oh, she lives. And you're glad to see that she lives. But it's very like, uh, mm-hmm. so what just happened exactly. there? Like, it doesn't end with like showing her home happy published novel. Well, I think that the implication yeah, is that, that like, it's her book. But oh, she's about to make bank on this autobiographical exactly. novel. Like, it's just her and Charlie Hunnam, whose name I refuse to remember as a character, yeah. just walking. They're limping, just like hunched in the snow. Yeah, bleeding because they're injured as they walk away from the fallen house. Yeah. Um, Which, and there's a huge satisfaction to that. Yes. But it doesn't mean it isn't tragic. Right. Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. Have you watched it yet? You can spoil it. I don't want to. Okay. Okay. But if you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, you know why that ending is bittersweet. I cry every time I see it. Shape of Water is is ambiguous, if not bittersweet. For me, I have a strange feeling at the end of that movie for some reason. Oh. And I can't put my finger on it. We will talk. We will talk. But but again, it just there's it, something about his endings. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And there's tragedy at the end of. Nightmare Alley. Yes. Somewhat. Or comeuppance. Blade 2, the vampire woman that, you know, Blade feels connection to who has the creepy brother. She literally dies in his arms. Um, Hellboy is interesting. Hellboy technically has two happy endings. However, I still give it a pass in terms of like saying that it's bittersweet because at the end of each movie, he is still Hellboy. He is still other. Right. The people that he's a, he's around, they are also still othered. Um, Abe, the fish man, has lost the elven princess that he was finally getting a connection to. And, you know, so that's bittersweet in that regard. But, yeah, he's not going to give you a straight happy ending. And I love that. Yeah, because I know where to go yeah. if I want it happily ever after. Right? All of his endings <laughs> are like wilted roses, beautiful and sad, and decaying, and decaying. Which is what gothic novels are about, yep. and yeah. yeah, because Mexican gothic also has that kind of ending. Who wrote that book, Roddy? Her name is Sylvia Morena Garcia. That's right. <laughs> I was waiting That's for right. so long to bring that so up. So mark that off your bingo cards, gentle <laughs> listeners. That's right. It's either going to be her, Beverly Jenkins. Yeah, when you said, I know where to go for my happy endings, I'm like, Beverly Jenkins. That's where you go. That's right. Um, but yeah, I really need, I'm just going to use this as a moment because who knows if you will ever listen to this, but Guillermo del Toro, please, if you ever are looking for something to adapt, she has so many books, so many that you would be perfect for. And please... And because Please. because that we know that you just take whatever genre you're doing and you go all in, I trust you with romance, sir. Yes, Absolutely. I trust you. Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm kind of shocked that Guillermo has not 
explored Gods of Jaden's Shadow yet. It sounds like it's right of a I think oh it God. would be perfect yeah. for him. His monster design, his like mythical creature design right. would translate so well to that book. Right. Like I'm excited that someone told him about Velvet was the night, but I really need him to read Gods of Jaden's Shadow like yesterday. Yes. Yeah. Like two years ago. Also, yesterday. Guillermo, if you're listening, come on the podcast. Just come on the podcast. Yes. We'll, chat. <laughs> we'll chat with you. Clearly, we're fans. We have a lot of questions. And yeah, so I just had to throw, well, because Mexican Gothic is one of the few like well-known modern gothic novels mm-hmm. there's actually quite a few there's one called catherine house i can't remember who the author was mm-hmm. and another one called like the bunnies or something like yep. that so there's, there's a few... death of jane lawrence there's tripping arcadia which mm-hmm. i read quite recently which leans into the poisons part yes of the gothic which was the most delicious part unfortunately it did not lean hard enough into rich people are bad actually and their wealth is the source of their badness interestingly enough also the diviners by libba bray came up and i did read that and i'm just like is that a gothic novel i tried to read the diviners and the first scene involves a ouija board which is a hard no for me yeah so i read the prologue and i went this book is not for mary graham's brain space right and that's a lesson in being able to put down books that aren't for you exactly but that I'm just tossing that one out there because I was told that it was I'm not I'm on the I'm fence unconvinced about it. based on what I've heard. Right. It sounds more paranormal. To yes. Me. That's what I was thinking. Yes. Um, because gothic novels, they do. It does lean into the paranormal. For sure. To be clear. Like the, but, I, but I would say the supernatural, actually, yes. which it, I can't quite articulate the distinction. But to me, there is a difference between the supernatural and the paranormal. Absolutely. So, gothic is squarely in the supernatural fear field. Yeah. Yeah. We have to do another sequel episode because there's just too much more ground to cover. <laughs> we do this every time. We do this every time where we just get on so many wonderful tangents, but we cover a lot of great points. We do. Well, mm-hmm. and when we do Villains Part 2, Roddy just finished a trilogy That's that right. is going to feature prominently. So, we need to get that. That's right. Schedule. We'll do Villains Part 2, and then... I feel like when we do romance part two, the door could open for like a gothic to come back in at the end. If mm-hmm. we could just yeah, for sure. Mix that together. For sure. Roddy, you look like you still have a lot on your mind. I can't. Uh, the spontaneous combustion feeling is just coming back because gothic novels will haunt me forever. So in the best way. Do, in the best way. <laughs> do we have any recommendations to leave listeners with for things we haven't talked about yet, or even just like what is our top gothic? Um, oh my goodness do i have a top gothic i don't well i mean uh, you i think literally on the ferndale library website if you look at the staff picks frankenstein is in my top five so Mm. frankenstein has to be my pick i think i'm not sure that this would be like top gothic for me however elizabeth gaskell writer of north and south Mm. itself a gorgeous romance uh has a short story called the old nurse's story that is just like the chef's kiss of gothic fiction and it's not that long and you can find it for free online and so that is my recommendation to you dear listeners i'm just gonna say mexican gothic because if the idea of reading an old gothic novel feels a little like intimidating for you and you just want so we're on the same line but you just want to like get a taste of what the genre is like and you know just have it be slightly more accessible in terms of language and things like that then mexican gothic is a wonderful introduction into the genre and what to expect yes so. that could be a great gateway to maybe even some guillermo too so yes yes just i think that 
That's right, listeners. Uh, you've listened to another episode of a Little Too Quiet, Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. I was joined by Mary Graham. Hello. And Roddy. Hello. <laughs> I just did first names today, guys. <laughs> Mary Graham, so... So trepidatious. For a second, I also I forgot that we like would say hi to tell people what our voices sound like. So I'm like, why was Jeff staring at? Oh, but I also didn't get a lot of sleep last night. We'll cover that in the intro. (laughs) This is all staying in the podcast. You again, I will tell you, have listened to an episode of the Friendly Liar podcast, where once again we have told you to read Sylvia, I know Garcia. If they haven't read it at this point, you're doing something wrong. We're just going to bring it up in the next episode. <laughs> the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is by local musician John Duffy. And if you want to support this podcast, go to ferndalefriends.org or remember to rate, review, and follow us as well and tell your friends about us, especially if they love gothic novels or Guillermo del Toro, which has a, a very expansive Venn diagram meeting in the middle, clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.